Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Days after Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock gave Democrats their Senate majority by beating Herschel Walker, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona registered as an independent to garner more bargaining power in the upcoming Congress. The Senate's other two independents, Maine's Angus King and Vermont's Bernie Sanders, caucus with Democrats, unlike cinema. The House passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act, but the omnibus appropriations measure is stalled. The NDAA uh, could come at a high price. Lawmakers are forcing the Pentagon to back off vaccination requirements that forced hundreds from military service uh, that Republicans want reinstated in full with back pay. In the new session, the new House China Select Committee will help focus Congress's attention as Washington steps up uh, its game to counter Beijing's global influence and capabilities. The Biden administration, with help from the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, traded convicted merchant of death Victor Boot for American basketball star Brittany Griner sparking bipartisan criticism for leaving behind other innocent American hostages like former Marine Paul Whelan. As Paris and Washington bask in the glow of their successful summit, the war in Ukraine grinds on with more accusations of Russian war crimes as Moscow continues to try to cripple Ukraine's infrastructure. And the man who started the war, Vladimir Putin, is warning Russians of a prolonged conflict. Turkey continues to block Finland and Sweden's NATO membership as Warsaw demands more than $1.3 trillion uh, from Germany in World War II reparations. After nationwide protests, China eased COVID restrictions, a problematic move given China is sparsely vaccinated, has few doctors, hospitals, or intensive care beds. Uh, And the question remains whether Chinese citizens will sue for greater rights now that they manage to garner COVID concessions, and Bibi Netanyahu's new administration in Israel is likely to be even more right-wing than many thought. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is affiliated now with the Center for a New American Security and co-hosts the Must Listen Brussels Sprouts podcast, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum uh, were sponsored by Leonardo DRS uh, and uh, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look Uh, at all things uh, space. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. Michael, uh, start us off as you always do, right? I mean, a very, very busy uh, time. Uh, You had a tremendous party uh, as usual. Uh, Your wife, uh, Vicky, did a tremendous job hosting it because you've been a little bit under the weather, uh, even though you've still been sort of working 24-7 as lawmakers uh, moved, uh, at least in the House, to pass uh, their version of the National Defense Authorization Act. 
Um, walk us through where we are on the NDAA, what you think is interesting about it on the House side. Obviously, some major uh, bitter pills in there for uh, the Pentagon, but we have no omnibus either. The debt discussion remains stalled. Uh, bring us up to speed on, on all of this and how we need to be thinking about it. So the NDA continues to move along. So it did pass the House uh, on uh, Thursday. Um, and the top line is $45 billion higher than the president's budget request and $75 billion higher than last year's NDAA. And it passed with an overwhelming bipartisan majority, 350 uh, to 80. And the 80 that voted against it were pretty evenly split between Democrats uh, and Republicans, which again shows that this is a bill that neither party can pass with just their own votes, that it has to continue to be a bipartisan bill in order to get it passed. Um, but there were a lot of things that were threatening to slow down the NDA. It actually did, because as a, a must-pass piece of legislation, as we've talked in previous episodes, there were a lot of things that people wanted to stick on the NDAA, like Manchin's permanent reform, safe banking, uh, repeal of the 2002 Iraq War, AUMF, uh, the Journalism Competition Act. Uh, there was a, actually a push to get a waiver for a 737 MAX certification. None of those things at the end of the day made it into the NDAA. Right. However, there was a meeting last week among Republican and Democratic leaders with the, the, the uh, Biden White House to talk about uh, getting rid of the vaccine uh, mandate in the NDAA. And there was a feeling when that meeting was over, there was an agreement that they could do that. Um, and then the plan was to file the bill on Friday. However, they were unable to file the bill on Friday because the Pentagon objected to getting rid of the vaccine mandate. Uh, so the bill then was hoped to be filed by Monday, which again, it was not. <clears throat> and it was filed on Tuesday when finally the White House agreed that they would get rid of the vaccine mandate in the NDAA. However, they had planned to vote on the NDAA on Wednesday. And at the last minute, uh, the leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus came in and said that they are demanding uh, that voting rights legislation uh, be attached uh, to NDAA. So that prohibited NDAA from getting voted on Wednesday. However, this was worked out and the bill was passed uh, on Thursday. And you know there were also some concessions made to Democrats too. I mean, Chuck Schumer felt very strongly and got language in that would bar federal agencies and contractors from using uh, computer chips produced by certain Chinese companies. Uh, the Ukraine uh, security assistance was increased well above the, the president's budget request. So the bill, uh, you know, was never perfect, but it's a very good bill had strong bipartisan support. And now it heads to passage in the Senate next week. Um, let me uh, just and, and I, I, I want to uh, I'm going to let uh, Dove come in here uh, in a minute uh, to ask about uh, the back down uh, on uh, covid restrictions. Right. I mean, ultimately, if you're wearing a military uniform, you have to follow all sorts of orders and anybody who's ever done it ends up becoming a pin cushion uh, and you get a whole bunch of shots, whether you really like it or not, just like you may not have a choice. You get selected to go, for example, to Afghanistan or Iraq, whether you uh, don't want to uh, don't want to serve or not. Let's quickly move through uh, some of the other uh, issues and where we stand, where we stand on the omnibus, where we stand on the debt ceiling uh, as well. Well, debt ceiling, all of a sudden, no okay, you didn't you. you didn't have to laugh when you started. That, <laughs> well, by the way, I, it's either going to laugh or cry right now because. I've, I've been hopeful that they, they would deal with debt ceiling, but now no one's even talking about it. Uh, so right. I am very pessimistic that debt ceiling will be dealt with this year. Um, omnibus discussion. Which, which, then, which then sets up, right, the nightmare scenario that we end up in another BCA. You know, I had a con great conversation with Mike McCord uh, at the Reagan Forum. You know, his concern is a year-long CR as well as uh, becoming the hostage again uh, in this scenario. So from your standpoint, that is an increasingly likely it, it, that's increasingly likely or I an think increasing that prob it's, probability it's a, of it. 
it's the, it becomes a probability with the FY24 legislation, not necessarily with FY23, because debt ceiling doesn't become an issue until the third quarter of next year. So I'm still hopeful that we'll get an FY23 omnibus, if not at the end of this year, which I still think we will, early next year before debt ceiling becomes a problem. Um, the problem now, right now is time. Is it, it, right now we're at an impasse over, um, over an agreement and the CR expires next Friday, uh, the 16th, a week from today. It seems to be agreement that they'll pass another CR next week to give them another week to extend the deadline to the 23rd. Um, but you know, lawmakers have left home without a deal. Uh, from what we understand, uh, the issue really is we're looking at an omnibus, as I mentioned previously, probably about 1.7 trillion, and that right now both sides are 26 billion dollars apart, um, and that is mostly on the non-defense, defense, domestic discretionary side. Personally, when you're talking about 1.7 trillion, 26 billion to me doesn't seem like a lot of money, and I feel confident and hopeful that they will come to some kind of compromise within that 26 billion uh, and get there before uh, the end of the year, uh, but. You know, there's a lot of posturing going on, and even uh, the House Chair Rosa DeLauro uh, did say a year-long CR is on the table. It's got to be, but that is not her position. She does not want a year-long CR. However, the administration surprised a lot of people on the Hill when OMB sent over a list of full-year anomalies uh, earlier in the week. Uh, that right. was, I think, a lot of people felt very uh, premature. Uh, and there are, you know, a few things that could still upset the apple cart when it comes to an omnibus this year or early next year. Things like, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now becoming very, very close to Kevin McCarthy, who's scrambling to get votes for speaker, wants to defund the special prosecutor uh, now being named the DOJ to investigate uh, to, to, Trump, to Trump and his administration. So uh, could she, if, if this goes into next year, uh, insist that an omnibus defund the special prosecutor. So there's a lot of still wrenches that can be thrown into the works, but I still feel that even though we're up against a time crunch, I'm hopeful that early next week uh, they will come to some kind of agreement. And the Democrats are going to put forward their own proposal early next week, which is not going to go anywhere, but hopefully will force Republicans uh, to come to some agreement with the Democrats. Uh, and uh, Kristen Sinema's uh, uh, defection, uh, what does uh, that mean, right? I mean, she doesn't caucus with Democrats now uh, anyway, even though she was a progressive Democrat, she is a consummate, I think, political opportunist. So it makes sense for her to make a move like this because then she can try to exact uh, as much as she can from both parties, uh, maybe, right? And stopping at a midpoint before she potentially goes Republican if that becomes a more attractive outcome. Uh, although uh, Arizona is changing in nature, uh, Mark Kelly uh, had a solid win uh, in Arizona. So it suggests that, you know, the, the right kind of Democrat can be very successful, just like the right kind of Christian cinema can be successful as a Democrat as well. Uh, what does this tell us and uh, how it complicates uh, Democratic operations uh, in the Senate? I don't think it complicates Democratic operations in the Senate one bit, uh, because earlier this week, um, uh, Raphael Warnock won re-election uh, for a six-year term in the Senate against Herschel Walker, which increased a uh, Democratic majority, uh, which we talked about previously, if you include cinema to 51 uh, to 49, right? So, right. And, and that really, I think, you know, I, I want to take point to how the Biden administration handled that versus how they're handling uh, Kristen Sinema's switch to being an independent. You know, Biden came out and said when Walker lost that this was, you know, a defeat 
uh, a rejection of ultra magism. And I think that was a mistake because I don't think that what really what it was. Right. I mean, Trump uh, it was rejection it, of a horrible candidate. Exactly. And, he, and Warnock only won it, by like two and a half points. Exactly. Right. I mean, the, the, the Walker campaign did not want Trump campaigning in the state, which he did not. They rejected Marjorie Taylor Greene's support in the state. In the end, it's exactly right. He was a horrible candidate. Right. I mean, the guy who really lived, lived in the state. Uh, who had, you know, uh, admitted to having bipolar disorder, uh, held a gun to his wife's head, uh, fathered countless children, uh, pressured many women to have abortions, and had trouble putting, you know, clear and concise sentences together. So I, I really think that uh, the Biden administration is supposed to be very careful in, in what they say, especially since the Republicans are going to have the House next year and they need to work uh, with, with Republicans. At the same time, I think the Biden administration was very uh, smart in their statement uh, today on cinema declaring itself as independent. I mean, they recognize her as a key partner in the historic legislation that the Biden administration has passed. You know, the American Rescue Plan, which she supported, the Bipartisan right. Infrastructure Law, which she supported, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the CHIPS Act, the Gun Safety Act, the Respect for Marriage Act. These are all things that cinema supported, and there's no reason that she's not going to continue to support things like that. So uh, it, she's not going to become a Republican, even if she did the Democrats will still control the Senate. So I really don't think this changes things one iota. What, what it really does is upset the landscape in 24 for the Senate race in Arizona. Right? If she runs as an independent, if the Democrats nominate somebody, does that split the vote? And does that mean that the Republicans win that seat uh, in 24? So uh, that's where the complications arise. But I really don't think it means anything right now for how the Senate will operate. Um, uh, Dove, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. I want to ask you really quickly about the COVID uh, uh, U-turn. Uh, and and what that means uh, for the administration. You sat as the uh, part of the senior leadership team uh, at the Pentagon. Um, what's your sense about what this kind of a climb down means? And especially if uh, the GOP forces all those who were thrown out of military service to be reinstated and reinstated with back pay. Uh, you wrote a great piece, by the way, uh, you know, arguing against the politicization uh, or, or retired general officers being involved in political causes because of how problematic that it is. This is a politicization of the military in, in, in some respect. What's your sense on how that plays out and the position that puts uh, everybody in? I mean, right, we, we heard everybody from Lloyd Austin uh, to the political appointees uh, at the Reagan Forum, making a case on why the vaccine mandate was important, whereas you saw military leaders uh, like uh, General Berger, the Marine Corps Commandant, who's seen as a frontrunner for uh, the role of chairman, sort of openly disagreeing and saying, well, you know, I have a recruitment issue, uh, and because I have a recruitment issue, I, I need to get people, and maybe we need to be flexible about that. First, I think uh, just for those who might not know, when when Michael talks about NDAA being must pass, they might folks might think, well, wait a minute, the money is appropriated. But there's one central element of the NDAA that is not subject to the appropriation, and that is the pay tables and for the military. And that is why the NDAA is a must pass, because and that's why I think it's 61 years now that it's passed, because we don't want to shortchange the military and not give them the increases that uh, they deserve, particularly when they're still fighting out there. And we may have pulled out of Afghanistan, but we've got troops all over the world and many of them are being shot at. Um, on the question of, uh, of the COVID vaccine, uh, yes, it's, it's definitely a setback for the administration. And to some extent, it is uh, a matter of politics because after all said and done, 
Uh, Republicans, uh, many of them have questioned the need for the vaccine and uh, there's this whole anti-vaxxer movement. But I think one also has to be fair and say that what General Berger said uh, is is really correct. They're having trouble uh, uh, accessing people, uh, new recruits. Uh, it's a particular problem with the army, but not only the army. Uh, and uh, th that makes this particular vaccine about which everybody seems so head up different from flu vaccines and other vaccines that you have to have if you're going to be in the military. It has been politicized. There's no question about it. But if you want to get people in, and many of them are scared off because they don't want the vaccine, you've got a problem when you have a shortage. So I would say, yes, it's a, it's a setback for the administration. It's not a, a military setback. It's a political setback. But it's not the only one, because uh, one of the other things, the sea launch cruise missile that the administration was hard over not to have, uh, that's passed the House and it's clearly going to pass the Senate. Um, the, the whole top line issue, uh, as Michael said, this is $45 billion that the administration said it did not want, and it's getting it anyway. So uh, in, in many respects, this has been a good few weeks for Mr. Biden but not in this particular case. Um, and, and let me ask you uh, about uh, the vibe uh, from uh, Budapest. Uh, what were uh, some of the key takeaways? Obviously, it's a frontline state. Uh, it is in a running uh, duel uh, with uh, the EU. Uh, and while you were there, uh, Poland obviously was pressing uh, its case for World War II reparations from Germany, the timing of which I think Jim will help us with uh, a little bit uh, in, in a moment. Uh, and obviously the war in Ukraine continues just on the other side of the border. What were some of the key takeaways from your standpoint? Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway is that there seems to be a perception in the capital, whether it's uh, government or think tanks, that what Mr. Putin hopes to do, quite frankly, is wait out the West uh, and essentially wait out the United States until the 2024 election. And he's hoping that uh, Mr. Trump will be back. That seems to be not only the perception that Hungarians have of Putin, but it seems to be also a perception that at least some people in the government, I didn't speak to Mr. Orban, so I can't say it's his perception, but at least some people in the government share that perception. And one of the interesting indicators of that is that Hungary has not and openly has said it will not provide military support to Ukraine. Humanitarian, yes, the, some equipment, yes, but not military stuff. And at a time when Ukraine desperately needs it from anybody who can give it, um, that is kind of an indicator that to some extent the Hungarians are hedging their bets, which by the way is in tremendous contrast to Poland, which is pouring everything it can into Ukraine. Um, that, that, frankly, uh, is my biggest takeaway. Some people have said, well, you know, the Hungarians are holding out uh, on Sweden and Finland, which they're not, they are and they're not. I'll, I'll get back to why I say that, uh, because they want to deal with the EU. Um, a lot of people say that that's not the case. These are two separate issues. Uh, as for the Swedish-Finland Finnish issue, um, it's true the Hungarians had promised and Orban uh, had said, you know, we're going to approve it we're not going to be the last ones to oppose it. Well, they don't have to be because they've got the Turks behind them. Right. But uh, they keep postponing. Um, they, the Swedes and the Finns thought this would be done in December. Well, no, it's not. Actually, they could have done it in the summer, but 
they announced the day before the summer recess, well, we can't do it. There's a summer recess. They come back. They say, no, we're going to do it in December. Now they're saying, well, we can't do it in December, uh, maybe January, maybe February. So obviously, when you want to get ev everybody to say, welcome in, and the Swedes and the Finns have made it clear that the day they come in, they'll start contributing immediately to uh, the, the naval side, the marine, the uh, air side, the land side, uh, you don't want to delay this thing. But then, of course, you've got Mr. Erdogan. So he's providing some degree of cover for the Hungarians. They will approve it. But uh, when is an open question? Uh, that is uh, that is uh, an open question indeed. Uh, the focus, although uh, you know, uh, Jim, uh, you've uh, noted uh, that uh, the the Turks will try to exact uh, or extort or negotiate, depending on what uh, adjective you want to use, uh, the the most um, uh, the most they can uh, for uh, their vote, and continuing to complain. Uh, about uh, Swedish uh, and Finnish uh, support for Kurdish groups or uh, shielding uh, Kurdish refugees, uh, actually, right? I mean, they, uh, Turkey characterized it as support for terrorists, uh, which uh, I don't think is an accurate uh, characterization in, in some cases. Um, well, walk us through where you think we are right now, Jim. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's very, very cold. Uh, and so the front seems to have stabilized, although I have to say Ukraine uh, conducted a pretty ambitious strike deep in Russia, uh, showing that no part of Russia is necessarily uh, safe. The, you know, there is a shopping mall outside of Moscow that's burning down right now. And uh, there are questions about whether or not Ukraine is involved in that uh, operation. Walk us through where we are, what some of the actions uh, that we've seen uh, mean, uh, and then want to get your sense on what this Polish move means, especially when it's coming, um, because the timing of it could not be worse uh, in some respects. Well, I think, uh, as you point out, the weather is really a, a major driver in next steps. Uh, and, and I think we, we can't underestimate uh, uh, Ukraine when it comes to fighting in bad weather. They've been doing this for six years. Uh, they live there. They know how to handle uh, mud and then the uh, hard ground when it when it comes. So I I think that the uh, the uh, U Ukrainian uh, forces are going to move probably sooner rather than later. I don't think they have they feel they have to wait for absolutely uh, perfect conditions. I think they know how to operate in it. But I would say also that the front lines are um, I, I guess you could say stable. But there's a lot of hard fighting still going on right now. A lot of it is artillery duels because. Uh, the mud is holding back, particularly wheeled vehicles and logistics. So um, big sweeps like we saw during the summer, that's not happening. But there are fights going on uh, around a couple of, of towns. <clears throat> some of these fights are more symbolic than anything else, where the Russians want to try to take some of these towns before the winter sets in just to have something on the scoreboard for themselves. Uh, but, uh, but some of these other towns, in fact, are... Uh, important logistics, close to some logistics and communication zones. And so uh, they're more strategic, but, uh, but, but they're not huge fights, but they're, but they're costly fights. And Ukraine can't afford to uh, use a lot of its uh, ammunition stocks and to see a lot of its frontline forces get used up before they're able to actually come together in a bigger offensive, maybe uh, a month or so down the road. So there is, there is this fighting going on. But your point about the drone strikes, I think it's important just to note that it's great to be able to take the fight to Russia. 
and that's what these guys are doing with the with the drones and uh um and these are not the most sophisticated drones in the uh, arsenal there <clears throat> of ukraine these are some modified uh older drones that are being used and so it really shows uh some problems in russian air defense uh these drones are getting through and they're hitting uh and they're hitting these targets pretty deep inside of russia uh and so this this idea that uh Ukraine uh, can't cause pain to the Russians uh, or fear that that would happen. It's just misfounded. It's unfounded. It's something where I think as we think about giving them attackums and this type of thing, I, I, uh, I, I just think that holding back on those things, given their ability to use these drones, I think holding back on attackums is just, I think there's a very weak case. And I think that uh, uh, taking the war to Russia at this stage is important. I don't see this as being escalatory. I don't see this as being something that should uh, cause the uh, White House not to sleep at night. I think I think we this is the next phase uh, is to be able to take this war further into into Russia until we start seeing these offensives happen when the when the uh, winter uh, hardens the ground there and makes it easier for the logistics for uh, for an assault to take place. So. So that's happening now, but but the last point I would make, Vago, is uh, I we we need to also focus on the humanitarian situation happening, uh, and that will be worsening in Ukraine with this destruction of the electricity, of heating, of having a very dark and cold winter settle in on the civilian populations in Ukraine. Uh, that's something very difficult to, to to assist with from the West. I know that we've been sending generators. I think there's. Lots of generators going in from Europe as well, but we're going to be seeing some photos and pictures and videos in the coming uh, months that are going to be very uh, heartbreaking of the civilians having to live under some pretty gruesome conditions this this winter. And that's the major weapon right now that Putin is using, and that's uh, the win the winter weather that he's using to uh, make life miserable for the for Ukraine. Um, I, I want to ask you, um, I want to go to the uh, uh, Brittany uh, Griner, uh, Victor Boot uh, exchange uh, in a minute, uh, but I want to get your take on the timing of Poland's uh, announcement uh, that it will go to the United Nations to try to get $1.3 trillion uh, from Germany in World War II reparations. Berlin's answer is Warsaw waived on that in 1953, uh, and, and looks like there is some cause for that claim. Germany uh, has uh, provided reparations to uh, nations and indeed uh, Holocaust survivors to this day uh, get support and those who were in forced labor camps uh, and the like. Uh, Germany has tried to make redress with Germany, uh, excuse me, with Israel by providing uh, high-end military equipment, including frankly developing and building uh, the country's um, uh, nuclear uh, or nuclear capable submarine force. Um, you know, why why is Poland doing what it's doing when it's doing them, when it's doing it? Right. I mean, well, what's what's Warsaw's calculation here? Well, my understanding is it's political. It's it's political uh, in Warsaw. It's something that the uh, government is going uh, is doing with eyes wide open. This isn't something that they thought they'd be able to win on. Uh, but it was scoring points at home. Uh, that's what I understand. And so the Germans have been. Uh, very clear up front that, as you point out, this ship sailed a while ago and they're not going to be providing uh, any of these reparations, but the polls uh, continue ahead because it plays well at home. And I think that's what we're seeing is a bit of kabuki theater here. We're just going to have to 
see this play out. And it comes at a terrible time. Uh, I mean, this political theater, there is, there is no room for political theater in Europe at a time like this. Whether it's in Budapest or whether it is in Warsaw, it's just, uh, it's pathetic. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, this is something that's going to only uh, redound in the favor of, of Putin. Uh, as as this is seen as another way of 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 um, of Europe weakening, and I do believe, and Dove said this, he's picked this up in Hungary, this idea that um, that Putin is playing for time, that he is uh, expecting over time that that uh, Europe will weaken, that the fissures will become more apparent, and that maybe assistance to Ukraine will drop off. Uh, this kind of idea that uh, time is on the side of Putin is, uh, you know, this, this kind of stunt by the Poles uh, emboldened that kind of view in Warsaw that just, you know, give Europe enough time and we're going to see things splitting off. And I think Poland plays into the Russians' hands by, by pulling off this stunt. And I think it's just, uh, it's just preposterous. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, a toxic move uh, at a toxic time unless... It, uh, you know, Poland's uh, calculation is that it can be a bargaining chip, right? I mean, it's in uh, the EU's gun site uh, for uh, obviously judicial transgressions uh, and uh, accusations of authoritarian behavior. Uh, obviously, Hungary faces the same thing where EU is with, with, withholding aid from Hungary uh, as, a, as a consequence, and which I think is right. I think no nation uh, that is not in spirit and action, a democracy in Europe, uh, needs to feel, you know, you, you can't benefit from EU subsidies if you're in violation or contravention uh, of uh, EU uh, 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 regulations and, and strictures. Uh, I want to get everybody's sense uh, really uh, quickly uh, on the uh, entire uh, uh, Brittany Griner, Victor Boot uh, prisoner exchange. You know, when Chris Coons, uh, who is a very close ally, the Delaware senator, uh, and the man who replaced Joe Biden uh, in the Senate uh, representing Delaware when Biden became vice president for Barack Obama. When Chris Coons is warning you that this is a very bad precedent, um, I think you should be listening to that as somebody who's got a lot of wisdom and political pragmatism to him as well. Um, Victor Boot for Paul Whelan and a number of other Americans and Brittany Griner and others who were detained, that's a good deal. But saying the White House's answer is, well, this is the only deal we could have, and we had to get Brittany Griner out. Why did we have to get Brittany Griner out? I think the right message, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel very badly. She's an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, she is uh, an athlete. She's in the prime of her career. Being in prison for 10 years is something that would be devastating for her. We don't want her in a penal colony any more than we want anybody else in a penal colony, uh, ultimately. Um Right. I mean, was this uh, the right or the wrong move? Patrick, why don't you start us off? Because you've spent time uh, in the State Department on foreign affairs. Uh, right. I mean, was this the right kind of move? I mean, obviously, um, both United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia looking like they want to help turn a leaf, uh, playing integral roles in this. The UAE role acknowledged the Saudi role somewhat less so. Patrick, why don't you start us off? I mean, was this the right move or does this pave the way, as critics say, uh, for more hostage-taking around the world? Well, as an American, I'm proud that we have a country and a government that cares about its people. But as somebody who works in the national security field, uh, we've been played. We've been played by a Russian intelligence operation 
Um, you know, from the very beginning, when uh, Victor Boot was taken, they've been seeking his release. Um, it seems, th and I don't want to give Russian intelligence more credit than uh, they deserve because they mess up all the time and they do nefarious things. But in this case, they have managed to swap um, a nefarious arms dealer they wanted back um, for a, a, a great athlete who committed basically a misdemeanor. They threw the book on her, locked her up, and then they found our weakness and extracted uh, Victor Boot. That's unfortunately the national security implication of this. That's why I think Senator Coons is right. Um, we have to be very concerned about the precedent, even if, yes, as Americans, we all want Americans who are unjustly held overseas back home. Uh, Michael, I want to uh, just go back up to you and quickly kind of go down the line on how everybody uh, rules on this. How are members from a bipartisan uh, perspective viewing uh, this uh, move, right? I mean, the administration characterizing it um, as we had no choice. We tried to broaden this. The Russians kept narrowing it, and we feel, felt like we wanted to at least get somebody out. Uh, and that the Russians were the ones who steered this to Brittany Griner. It was Brittany Griner for uh, Victor Boot or nothing, um, right? Obviously, they're going with somebody who was the higher profile person, the Olympic athlete, um, uh, and, and somebody with a much higher profile than anybody else, right? I mean, she is a celebrity in her own right. Um, what's, what's the sort of the, the bipartisan sense you're getting uh, from members? And then Dove and Jim want to get your sense about whether or not this was the right move uh, or, or not. I mean, I would have said pound sand, we're going to hold on to Victor Boot uh, until you are ready to have a legitimate adult conversation on this. Cause I think walking away from the, the table only improves uh, your, your chances, right? Anytime we start to worry about nuclear, guess what Vladimir Putin's doing now he's talking about nuclear again, uh, right. And putting into sliding nuclear weapons back on the table. Go ahead, Michael. Some of the Republican criticism that we're seeing is very political. And we have to take, you know, with, with a grain of salt. I mean, this is an issue that has plagued multiple previous presidents. I mean, I remember when I was an intern in the Reagan administration, it was revealed that we were engaged in an arms for hostages exchange back then, that there were American hostages being held in Lebanon that were controlled by the Iranians. And we not only sent weapons uh, to the Iranians to secure their release, but Oliver North went to Iran with a cake and a Bible, you know, and I was just an intern at the time and felt that was embarrassing. Um, right. You know, in the Trump administration, uh, as you know, um, helped secure the release of 5,000 uh, Taliban members uh, you know, during the end of his administration, you know, with a promise, you know, that they won't let Al-Qaeda come back. You know, of course, we, I don't expect the new regime to even keep that promise. So, you know, people who live in glass houses should be careful, you know, about this kind of criticism. And, you know, I'm sure it's a tremendous burden, you know, that the president, you know, here had to face in, in, uh, in making this decision. So I, I again, would, I would be skeptical of the criticism. I think a lot, look, I think, you know, a lot of this is also in Brittany Griner's control, too. I mean, I think a lot of people waiting to see if she does return to professional uh, basketball, is she going to kneel for the national anthem again? If she does that, that's really going to hurt uh, the Biden administration and the efforts they went to to secure her release. Uh, it is uh, certainly going to be very interesting to see what she does next, although I think everybody can understand that she's going to need some time to collect herself after 10 months in rather brutal captivity. Um uh, and and right, I mean the Russians are particularly good to make it particularly uh, humiliating for you as a as a as a prisoner. Uh, Dove and Jim, real real quick on where you uh, guys also fall uh, on this, and maybe uh, Jim, you can also talk a little bit about the the nuclear rhetoric that's also coming out of our Russian friends. Go ahead, Dove. 
Well, what complicates this, and, and you've heard good arguments on both sides of this issue, but what especially complicates this is that we essentially chose to prioritize a basketball player over a United States Marine. Uh, you know, uh, what does that do to the military? Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's obviously, he, as I understand, he's a former, he's a retired Marine, but Marines always consider themselves Marines for their life. Uh, and so that was the choice that we made. The other choice, of course, was um, to essentially say, we're picking one person, regardless now of who it was, we're picking one person over another. Uh, that's a problem as well. So it's a little different from the kinds of things that I think uh, Michael was talking about and that I remember as well since I was in the Reagan administration. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it does not ring terribly well to me uh, for those reasons. And of course, because the Russians know they can play us. And, and let's not minimize that. Uh, this is, was not the best of times. Uh, for this kind of a deal. And you know what? Think of John McCain, who refused to allow any deal and, and suffered for so long in, as a Vietnamese, uh, pris as a prisoner of war under the North Vietnamese and was tortured uh, and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to be party to this. So uh, there are a lot of other aspects here that I think uh, complicate this matter more than others. And at the end of the day, if, if I had to make a choice, I would side with, with Patrick. The administration says that they did not have a choice in this, that they could not have picked Paul Whelan over Brittany Griner. It was Brittany Griner or Busk. Uh, and so uh, they uh, thought- My, once, my once comeback, they the administration did have a choice. They chose to say, we're gonna take one. They could have said, stuff it. You're not going to play us. We're going to get either both people we want or you're not going to get the guy you want. They chose to, to go for Brittany Griner. I'm delighted that she's been freed. I'm delighted that we stood up for an American citizen, but she wasn't the only one. And this administration, I've said over and over again, is slow. They also don't know how to play hardball. Uh, and I think that that is a skill uh, that we've got to get better at. Uh, Jim, let me go to you because we have a lot of Asia stuff to discuss uh, with Patrick as well, who's been very, very patient. Uh, just get your sense. And also uh, on the nuclear side and, and what that tells us uh, as well, right? Because every time we have a little bit of forbearance, Vladimir Putin takes advantage of it, right? Millie or other people start to fret uh, publicly about a nuclear exchange guess what? He knows, ah, this is a button I can push. Uh, and let me let me take advantage of it. Just sort of your sense writ large on, on both the Griner, but also uh, the new nuclear rhetoric uh, issue and whether or not it's going to drive anybody in Washington to behave any differently or make concessions there. Well, I, I can be quick on both. On Griner, you know, it's what Patrick and Dove said. I'm happy she's out. It just was a horrible uh, situation to have her in a penal colony, for God's sake. Uh, it's just as, as uh, you know, it was a, just a, a rotten situation to be in at a rotten time with a rotten uh, uh, tyrant there in, in, in the Kremlin. Uh, but, uh, uh, but at the same time, what the deal sucked. Uh, and I do believe, like you said, uh, Vago, you know, this administration is not very good playing hardball. Uh, and, uh, and in a situation like this, they are particularly softies. And so, so we, we got this. I'm glad she's out. We've got one more in there. 
uh, and likely uh, more to come because of the precedent that's been set here. Uh, although, you know, this, this, this has been, uh, 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 as was pointed out earlier, uh, administrations in the past have been plagued by this type of extortion. So, uh, so in terms of a precedent, it's an old one that's it's been around a long time. But on the nukes, uh, you know, that's something else. Uh, you know, we've heard this before from Putin. Um, I don't think it's going to drive anything one way or another. Uh, we can't be afraid of it when he rattles that nuclear saber. We know he's trying to extort us all in, the, in, in that way by using fear tactics, not just on the U.S., but on Europe as well. And so far, you know, it really hasn't uh, it hasn't had that much of an impact, but it certainly has put us in a new world where we're having to deal with, uh, uh, you know, with an adversary in this case who actually places that nuclear card face up on the table uh, and 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 the, right. and uh, we have to deal with it. So. So, you know, in terms of him raising that again, uh, we've heard it before. We have to keep moving forward and not let that, uh, you know, make us afraid. Uh, be not afraid, as uh, as uh, uh, Pope uh, John Paul II uh, used to say, uh, which I think is, is very apt uh, in this case. Speaking about being afraid, uh, Patrick, uh, it seems as though uh, the Chinese leadership... Um, uh, responded to the unprecedented nationwide protests around the country about uh, the stringent uh, nature of the nation's COVID lockdowns. On the other hand, one of the reasons the, the Chinese administration was, was doing that was the bulk of its population is not vaccinated. It knows it does not have a good medical system. It knows its doctors aren't very good. And it also knows that it has something like you know one ICU bed, uh, intensive care bed per 100,000 Chinese. Uh, and that actually might be a charitable accounting uh, of uh, their emergency medical uh, capabilities, something that could very easily be overwhelmed uh, if if COVID actually spread more broadly. What what does this back down tell us, uh, Patrick? Um, and not just what it tells us, but as you know, history has shown that when you know the, COVID was not the only thing Chinese uh, or the Chinese were protesting, they were also protesting the repressive nature of their increasingly repressive nature of their uh, regime. What does this back down mean? Uh, and, and what is the, the China community, how is the China community viewing it and, and tells us about what's next? Well, in the short term, it means that Xi Jinping has indeed realized that the zero COVID policies backfired and he needed to adjust uh, somewhat radically. Um, in the longer term, we don't know how open the aperture is going to be for further protests, further search for reform. In the meantime, they've got to get through a winter of massive COVID outbreak, and they're not prepared for it, as you say. Um, already, um, the government's saying to the people, look, if you get sick, stay at home, unless you absolutely have to try to see a doctor because the fever clinics are overrun. Um, we don't have the medical supplies. We don't have the beds. Um, and they know that there could be up to a billion, one billion people infected this winter. Um, that's a lot of people. And while that's mostly going to uh, critically affect uh, those with complications uh, or the elderly, um, still, that's a massive uh, COVID wave to get through. So until we get to the other side of that COVID wave, we don't know what the impact will be politically on the party and on Xi Jinping. Meanwhile, where did Xi Jinping go? He went off to Saudi Arabia to collect his honorary doctorate in management from King Saud University. Um, but more seriously, what he's doing is he's continuing his move out in the world, his charm offensive, as I put it, um, which he practiced in Southeast Asia. And now he's practicing it in the Gulf. 
And there's a very serious side to it. There's a side that says, I want energy security. Uh, I want to displace U.S. power. Um, I want to uh, further create the string of pearls. Um, and if you want it more on the string of pearls, take a look at the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Asia Subcommittee testimony this week that I did, along with Greg Poling, uh, talking about what China's been up to in Cambodia and just in the five lower Mekong Basin countries, because this is part of a longer strategic military play on the part of China. Uh, and, and Saudi Arabia is instrumental in their plans. That's why I'm very glad to see somebody like, um, you know, Representative Mike Gallagher get the nod uh, in the House uh, to, in the new Congress next year, um, have a committee that looks at what China's doing across the board, whether it's uh, flooding the markets with fentanyl uh, and adding to our opioid epidemic or uh, infiltrating uh, other uh, open society uh, institutions and universities to what they're doing on the military front. Um, that's on the COVID side of, of dealing this. We don't know what this means, but we do know that Xi Jinping uh, is is done more than a tactical pivot, um, but he may pivot again if if the casualty rates go too high. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, a little bit about that testimony uh, that you uh, and, and Greg uh, provided. Why don't you summarize for the audience what some of the key points uh, of it were and what lawmakers and indeed Americans and any of those interested in security, whether they're uh, here or abroad, need to bear in mind about how, uh, how China is actually executing what is a pretty sophisticated long-term strategy. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of reminded, uh, you know, we have all the watches, they have all the time. The Chinese are taking a very long view uh, of this, just like the Russians are taking a long view. And we as democracies have a tendency of not responding well to pain over prolonged periods of time uh, as, as, a, as a general rule. What, what were the key takeaways that you and Greg delivered? Well, and, and Brian Eiler, who's an expert on the Mekong River, uh, you know, also testified. And that's part of the problem is that we look at the Mekong Delta, you know, and D Mekong River countries, um, so not just China, but therefore Myanmar and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam. And we look at them through the lens of the environment and uh, jobs and um, and environmental impacts from uh, from flooding and so on and uh, fish stocks. But in fact, the Chinese are looking at this strategically. Um, so not only are they poised on the borders with most of these countries with the you know, growing military, but they're putting in Belt and Road Initiative money that helps build ports, not just in Cambodia, but potentially in Thailand, also in Myanmar, um, that links up with this sort of uh, strategy that gives them a, a breakout from the Strait of Malacca dilemma, the problem the that uh, they could have a vulnerability there if we choked it. They're actually being poised globally all the way to the Mediterranean to close the choke points on U.S. forces and to monitor U.S. forces, lest we send them in defense of, say, Taiwan and a Taiwan contingency. So Taiwan, uh, China is setting up all of these things and they're using their economic influence. Belt and Road Initiative is the banner and the headline. Um, and they're using it as well for their energy security, for their uh, for their dual circulation policy to make the world more dependent on China and us, um, uh, you know, and China less dependent on us. Um, so that, that's also what they're doing in, in the Gulf. That's what they're doing in Southeast Asia. And the testimony largely talked about this. Greg Poling gave very good detailed analysis about what they're doing at RIAM uh, uh, Naval Base, which continues to be denied that this is going to be a Chinese naval base. It's denied by both the Cambodian government of Hun Sen, as well as by 
the Chinese, but don't worry, uh, it will be a naval base. They are dredging it, they're creating it, uh, sort of a docking for, for naval vessels. Uh, and China will have access to this, and it's not the only place. They have access elsewhere in Cambodia. They're going to have access to major, possibly Thai bases, uh, as well as the ones they already have uh, potentially in Myanmar on the West Coast that essentially gives them a bridge to the Indian Ocean as well as to the Pacific Ocean. My my takeaway on this for the members of Congress was that we needed to focus on our, our Thai ally, which is being uh, essentially um, uh, coveted by and, and sought out by, by China, but also uh, Vietnam. So even though we have political differences with Vietnam, um, they have a strong strategic uh, alignment with our views on security in the region. And we need to work very closely with, with those two important countries in Southeast Asia on the mainland, not just maritime Southeast Asian countries where we have more natural allies like the Philippines, like Indonesia. Uh, I, I, I like the uh, fact, uh, uh, Patrick, that you said, well, don't worry about that uh, because uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it totally, totally reassures me. Um, I'm, I'm very relaxed. Although I have to say that I think it's terrific uh, that Mike Gallagher uh, is going to be leading the new uh, House uh, Select China Committee. Uh, somebody who's very thoughtful, uh, understands uh, military power. We, we, we always like to, uh, I, and I am not joking when I say Dr. Gallagher, because there are not many people who, uh, in their own right, not only are they uh, accomplished uh, war fighters, uh, but also, uh, you, you know, have the uh, academic uh, background with a PhD uh, to his name. But just real quick, what, what do you think the top priorities, and we're, we're hopefully going to have uh, 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 Mike uh, on the program soon uh, to talk a little bit about what his priorities are. It was terrific seeing him at the Reagan Forum. Uh, what do you think some of his priorities are going to be, or priorities have to be, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, as the new uh, committee uh, gets started, right? I mean, because I think it's very important for it to strike the right tone when it gets out of the blocks. So it's not just seen as a, you know, uh, sort of an ad hominem partisan tool, but actually I think the way uh, Mr. Gallagher intends it to be a tool to really organize uh, the Congress and, and better organize the nation for the threats ahead. Well, in addition to the obvious military side of this, I think it's very much, it's the non-military malign behavior on the part of China, whether that's disinformation and misinformation, whether that's penetration into our universities, into our industries, um, espionage, um, trying to break up our allies, drive wedges, um, and other nefarious uh, patterns of behavior like the fentanyl supplies uh, that adds to the opioid epidemic. I think all of those kinds of malign behaviors um, will find a lot of bipartisan support. Um, and he's uh, an intelligent man who's seen war, uh, who has a PhD, uh, who's got a very uh, clear-eyed view of the Chinese. So I think it'll be a, a welcome addition, uh, an additional sort of institutional focus on the China challenge for the United States and for our allies and partners. Uh, and we should have added, right, TikTok, uh, obviously another important uh, you know, Im important factor that I think sometimes people overlook and say, oh, you know, I mean, that's too extreme. And I know that in one of the panel discussions uh, that came up, right, uh, you know, um, how would you, you know, would you advise your kids to keep using TikTok? And the answer was like, hell no. And very quickly, uh, Patrick, um, give us a quick update on uh, industrial based news. Obviously, we, we had the U.S. Australia uh, talks, the Osman talks, uh, but also a lot of progress in the armaments relationship between Japan and the United Kingdom, something that we haven't seen uh, going back almost to World War I, uh, 
uh, in the relationship between the two countries. Our business program has uh, covered uh, the reality that Japan will be joining the United Kingdom on the Tempest Future uh, Combat Aircraft Program, something that also includes Italy and Sweden. Uh, give us kind of a quick sweep on the defense industrial stuff, and we can follow up uh, in greater detail next week. Three things that I would highlight, Vaga. One is that um, Japan, the UK, and Italy have announced their agreement to jointly develop the future combat air, air, air system, so the next generation fighter. So after previous rounds in which the United States has always insisted on essentially winning that competition with Japan, Japan's going with Europe. Um, there'll be a lot to talk about in the future about what how that came about and where it's going. Secondly, um, the Osman talks that were held, the aftermath is very interesting because not only was there a lot of lobbying going on and still going on to try to gut or get rid of the ITAR, the International Trade and Arms Regulations, restricting tech transfer, um, because they're trying to forge an integrated alliance industrial base. And not just US, Australia, and the UK, but in this case, you had Richard Marles, the labor defense minister, saying uh, today, in fact, that um, they, he sees Japan joining AUKUS in the future. Uh, so in the fullness of time, that's extremely interesting. So maybe this uh, next fighter generation uh, uh, development plus where AUKUS is going, plus AUKUS addition, maybe we're looking at a larger confederated industrial complex after all. We'll see. And I can throw in finally, thirdly, that Japan is going to produce a new space strategy. So if you want to put another country into this industrial base, um, Korea could be part of that in the, in the long term. So not only do we see U.S., Australia, uh, the United States getting closer um, with U.K. but in Europe, but also we see uh, possibly Korea being part of this larger um, Western democratic industrial defense base of advanced technology, which will have to be compete with China in the long term. Uh, we have only about a minute and a half uh, left, and Dove, you get the minute and a half, uh, unless anybody else has anything to add, want to get a sense. Uh, you know, any update that there is on Iran uh, would be uh, welcome as well, because it looked like the Iranian authorities were doing the same thing to sort of back off on the religious police. Uh, I don't believe there's been any formal confirmation on that. And then Bibi Netanyahu, uh, if it was possible, veering further uh, to the right, which you warned that he might actually be forced to do, uh, and what the uh, repercussions and implications of that are. Take it away. Well, first of all, let me just add a little bit to what Patrick said about the Chinese uh, Xi's visit to Saudi Arabia. They've signed what they call a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement, which is kind of interesting. There's a deal with Huawei. So while the United States and its allies are pushing out Huawei out, Saudi Arabia is welcoming them in and a whole bunch of other agreements for all so in, in all sorts of ways. This, I think, is the Saudi way of telling the United States, you mess with us, we'll mess with you. Uh, on Iran, uh, you have to remember that even if they do abolish the religious police formally, informally, they could still have people acting in exactly the same way. Think about all the rocks that are thrown at people who come into ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods in Jerusalem. It's not formally organized, but if you get hit with a rock, you, you feel like you've been hit with a rock. So uh, we don't know officially whether this has happened. We don't know officially whether they're really easing up on hijabs for women. Uh, but even if they do, they could always tighten up again. Uh, the regime is not uh, not in, in anything like the serious trouble the Shah was in. And I've said that before uh, on this podcast. Finally, Mr. Netanyahu, um, he keeps uh, moving further and further to the right. He's got himself now uh, a new member of his governing coalition, a man named Maoz, who's a one man representative 
uh, of his party and yet is anti-LGBT, uh, is anti-non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, uh, of course, agrees to push the Arabs out like uh, Schmatrick and, and Ben Gvir, the other two right-wingers in the government who have more clout. Uh, and, and Netanyahu doesn't even need this guy. He would have a majority of 63 without him. Uh, one other thing about Netanyahu, he, he's kind of like Arafat used to be. Arafat would say one thing in America and then say something quite different to his Palestinian listeners in, in Arabic. Netanyahu is doing the exact same thing. He goes on television here. He says, I'm in charge. He says, I can control these guys. That's not the kind of talk he's talking in Hebrew when he speaks in Israel. And oh, right. by the way, given that he needs these guys to fundamentally to stay out of jail, uh, it's not clear what he can control. I, I just want to point out to the audience, uh, we had um, uh, John Kirby uh, on the program, and, and I think where John has been uh, tremendous uh, is pointing out to anybody in the communications field, you can no longer have multiple messages anymore. There is no way for you to talk and say one message to one audience and another message to another audience. It's all one big audience uh, and having a consistency of message uh, is important to your credibility and and uh, your uh, overall uh, effectiveness. Uh, before we part, I just want to point out uh, just uh, real quick, uh, uh, Michael, um, you know, anything you want to add uh, about Mike Gallagher and, and uh, how you think he's going to be acting when he uh, does take over uh, and, and launch this uh, new select uh, committee. Uh, and I also should point out uh, that Paul Whelan uh, was, and, and again, is, is not a reason not to, he is a former Marine, but he, he did unfortunately have a bad conduct discharge and was uh, reduced in rank, uh, having been uh, accused uh, of um, multiple counts related to larceny. So he was a staff sergeant and was uh, busted down to uh, an E. Uh, four um, when uh, he uh, left the Marine Corps. Again, he's been in captivity since 2018, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily a factor uh, because that was an event that happened uh, in uh, early uh, 2008, uh, according to Wikipedia. But go ahead, Michael, uh, and let's bring this over, over the finish line. Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to heap praise on Mike Gallagher as well, uh, since Mike's a very good friend, and I think he's the perfect um, choice for this position. Not only does he have the, the background uh, to, to chair this special select committee, but the uh, incoming speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has made it crystal clear that he really wants this select committee to work on a bipartisan basis. And Mike is not a partisan. He works very well across party lines. He's on you know, the Committee of Armed Services, as you know, which is the last bastion of bipartisanship. So I think he has all the key qualities necessary uh, to really steer this committee and hopefully come up with some action items that we can start to repair the damage that we've caused to ourselves over the last decade with our increased dependence on China. Um, he is a uh, friend of the show and he's always welcome aboard. Uh, so Mike, uh, Fairwind's following sees as you get this organized and we look forward to having you on the program uh, soon. Everybody, thanks so very much. Uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, we had uh, we don't have enough time to talk about all the things that we have to uh, we want to talk about, uh, but it's always an honor and pleasure uh, having you uh, on the program. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, a great week and look forward to having you back on uh, again next week. Thanks so much.